0: Welcome to the White Health Podcast, the EU-funded White Health Project aims to conduct research on pervasive e-health and establish a sustainable network of research and dissemination across Europe. You can know more about the project on our webpage, whitehealth.eu, YouTube or Twitter. Our guest speaker today is Vera Ousmani, a senior researcher at Fondazione Bruno Kessler Research Institute, We will discuss the challenges involved when applying machine learning in medicine, and in particular, critical care. Let's
1: dive in. First of all, thank you all for for attending the seminar. I think we have quite a few people here, so it's great to see that there is so much interest in this uh, in this topic. Obviously, I think it's very very interesting since I'm doing this work, and I hope by the end of the presentation, you know, uh, you will feel so too. Um, so today I'll discuss a bit uh, about uh, the kind of the methods uh, that we use to predict deterioration of, of critically ill patients. And I will talk about a bit about uh, challenges that uh, you know we usually face when we try to apply uh, AI and machine learning in medicine. Uh, before I start uh, with the presentation, I would like to acknowledge uh, the co-authors of this work so my colleague Ben Rouse from Fondazione Bruno Kessler and then the clinicians, uh, Wesley from National University of Hospital in Singapore, uh, Louis from University of Southampton School of Medicine, um, David from University of Virginia School of Medicine, and also Leo from MIT and uh, Beth Israel uh, Medical Center. Um, I should mention that um, this is the work that took uh, over six months in fact to to complete. So obviously I will be skipping uh, a lot of details, but um, I will only focus on the kind of uh, the main parts. Okay, so as an overview, um, I will talk a bit about why we did this work, what was our motivation? Uh, then I will talk about problem definition, um, and here uh, I will focus. Uh, I will stop a bit more and focusing on uh, challenges, challenges in, in, in machine learning applied uh, to medicine, and why it's different. For example, when you apply machine learning in in other domains, for example, computer vision, natural language processing, or even you know human activity recognition, that you know some of the people here are very familiar with. Uh, then I will talk about how, addressed, how we address the, the, the problem, what methodology we used, uh, the results we obtained. And finally, I will talk uh, a bit about um, what were the main findings and what uh, is the future plan. Okay, so in terms of motivation, um, intensive care units uh, generate, generate large quantities of data. And uh, this data is generated in continuous manner. Of course, humans are limited in actually processing uh, large quantities of data, and this limitation obviously extends to ICU clinicians as well. Um, therefore, uh, 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 there is always a risk of uh, uh, not recognizing early warning signs of deterioration. Uh, due to information overload. and as a result then it might lead to delays in actually treating deterioration patients and affecting the, the final outcomes. So we know why we are doing this work, um, but you know, how actually we define the problem? Um, before I go into the problem definition, uh, I want to talk a bit more, a, a bit about why, uh, you know, machine learning for medicine is different from, from the, the other domains that I, I spoke about. So um, we know that machine learning has been very success, successful on, on well-defined problems, uh, where solutions are easy, verifiable. For example, you know, majority of the people agree what a cat is and they can label the picture either either that contains a cat or not. And of course, then once the models are, um, you know, trained and they are developed, uh, it's relatively easy to verify, you know, how well the model is doing. Or even in terms of, of human activity recognition, for example majority of people agree you know what is the sequence for to, to carry out a specific activity uh, but in medicine the problems are not well posed uh, so they the, and the solutions uh, to those problems are difficult to verify for example today um, I'm talking about deterioration but the question is you know how to be labeled something like this uh, in terms of, of, of machine learning um, then of course, um, w- once we have a problem defined and uh, uh, a solution, then there are other challenges in terms of uh, data. So typically uh, in, in medicine, data is limited, uh, meaning that you, know, you have to work uh, with what you're given. So you cannot go into the wild and collect more data. Um, data could be missing. And this is an issue because uh, the fact that the data is missing might be informative as well. So, for example, uh, the fact that an intervention uh, has not been recorded, uh, it's difficult to say whether uh, the clinician judged it as unnecessary because of the patient state or it has been reported due to an error. Then. Uh, Data might be biased. Of course, this this uh, this is true for, for uh, many many data sets in in, uh, machine, le- in machine learning in AI in general. But uh, for example, especially in, in medicine, um, ICT codes sometimes are used for um, carrying out research, but these codes in fact are optimized for billing. Um, and then, you know, data might be noisy. So we want to do things like outlier detection, uh, we cannot simply apply a formula, but it needs to be based on uh, cl- uh, clinically relevant intervals uh, for, for each variable. And also sometimes these intervals are not uh, very well defined. And of course, uh, the models that we create, uh, they must be explainable. Uh, and this is a, a, a still a very big challenge for longitudinal data because We need to understand not only um, what variable is relevant but also at what time. So um, this creates enormous challenges but of course whenever there are challenges there are also huge opportunities to really uh, transform medicine. So coming back to our problem um, in terms of machine learning I asked the question how to actually label deterioration. Now As you can imagine, if you ask clinicians what patient deterioration means, you will probably get uh, very different answers. So the clinicians that we worked with uh, were especially interested in lactate. And I will explain a bit what what lactate is. So lactate is a measure of uh, lactic acid in the blood. What that means is that uh, lactate levels actually increase uh, if oxygen isn't ready available. So, for example, even if you are doing strenuous exercise, that causes an increase in, in lactate levels. But the difference is that uh, for healthy individuals, uh, lactate is cleared uh, by the liver. However, uh, in patients, uh, uh, the lactate remains in the blood. And this is the kind of the two studies uh, that we we have done uh, very recently where we found that um, high levels of lactate, so greater than or equal to 10 uh, millimol per liter were associated with 79% uh, hospital mortality. So as you can see, lactate is is definitely a very good indicator of of patient state and uh, can predict deterioration. Of course, The story is not finished because um, if we have these lactate levels, how much of an increase actually should be labeled as deterioration? So um, lactate levels range from around zero or close to zero up to 30 millimol per liters. So we looked, of course, at the clinical guidelines. um, And then we, we found out that, for example, some guidelines suggest that if a 10% increase in lactate levels elevates the risk of, of, of mortality, some other guidelines uh, suggested that it should be a group based uh, approach. So we group the patients, if the lactate is less than two, uh, we group them into a normal group. Uh, if it's mild, from two to four, and severe, greater than four. But then, um, you know, you see papers like this. So these are the three papers that have been published in in 2016. And obviously, uh, first and second are very much contradicting each other. And the third one, we are not really sure. So I think what this highlights is that um, it is very important, actually not very important, but it's fundamental uh, to work very closely with the clinicians in in, in defining the problem. Um, So for our needs, um, this is how we define the problem. So what we have here is we went with a group-based approach. So we have patients in the normal, mild and severe. And then for each of these groups, we define two outcomes, a negative outcome and positive outcome. So for example, if if patients are in the normal group, uh, if the lactate increases to mild or severe, it's considered a negative outcome. Then same for the mild. For example, if the lactate increases to severe group or even remains with the mild group, then it's a negative outcome. And the same with with severe as well. And then of course, the opposite of this, we have the the positive outcomes. Uh, So if the patients remain within the normal group, this is considered a positive outcome. If it decreases, if from mild decreases to normal, it's positive and so on. So, uh, since we also saw the guidelines that were suggesting a uh, 10% increase in lactate levels, and we also uh, provided an alternative definition outcomes. So if 10% is an increase, we uh, label that as uh, deterioration. Okay, just to give you a kind of uh, a visualization of this problem. Um, so the red arrows indicate um, lactate measurements. So what we have here, this is the legend. Uh, we have observation window, uh, prediction window, which in our case was two hours and then uh, lactate measurement. So the patient gets admitted to the EICU, to, sorry, to EICU. Then at time T0, a lactate is measured. And then there are some variables over time that are measured here. So our objective is to take uh, Uh, the variables that have been measured in this time and predict the next lactate two hours before. And then we also repeat this process for the uh, subsequent lactate measurement. So then this one becomes our reference point, reference time, uh, the variables are, of course, are measured. And then we make the prediction. Something that we also tried, and you can see on on this grayed out uh, arrow, we also tried to extend the observation window. So what we wanted to do here is to incorporate all the past information in order to predict uh, the subsequent lactate measurements. However, in our case, the results did not improve. And uh, this would be because uh, of the nature of this problem. So perhaps for lactate prediction, uh, past information, uh, maybe is not very relevant. So um, we have the problem defined now. How did we address it? So in terms of methodology, um, we used uh, two large clinical databases. Uh, These are well-known databases. Uh, One is MIMIC uh, that has uh, 61,500 ICU admissions and uh, EICU CRD, which has uh, over 200,000 admissions. Now, I should mention here that uh, Mimic is a single-center database, and what that means is that all the data is coming from a single uh, ICU. And typically, uh, in terms of uh, data analysis, uh, Mimic data is, is typically more homogeneous, uh, whereas uh, for EICU, the data is coming from uh, three hundred and thirty-five different ICUs and two hundred and eight hospitals. Then, of course, you know we had to. Um, define our uh, patient selection criteria. So we focused only on the adult patients uh, that had the length of stay at least for 24 hours. And then since we are actually predicting uh, uh, the subsequent lactate, we had to ensure that in our data set, um, uh, the patients that we selected had at least two lactate measurements in the first 48 hours. So from these data here, uh, we came uh, uh, to uh, an overall patient cohort of close to 30,000 patients, and it was divided uh, with mimic of 12 and a half thousand and the ICU 17 and a half thousand or less. Um, and this is our uh, selection diagram. Um, so I think uh, what you will see basically here is that um, even though we are starting with two quite large databases. What we end up here is, uh, you know, a number of uh, a, a cohort uh, significantly reduced. And I think this is, you know, another aspect of, of um, challenges of in, in, health, in, in medicine, especially in healthcare in general, where, you know, you really need a lot of data because by the time you apply your s- uh, selection criteria, you're, you end up with a much smaller um, amount of, of uh, patients and data in general. Okay, so in order to create the model, um, we selected uh, 54 variables. And uh, these were the variables that were common uh, to both data sets, to both MIMIC and uh, EICU. And these variables were um, categorized into into four uh, categories. So lab, uh, clinical observation, treatment, and, and demographic. I should also say here that you know also this work uh, uh, harmonizing uh, the two databases took a substantial amount of time because um, uh, different variables are coded differently obviously because uh, they come from two to uh, with, with, from many different hospitals so uh, for example we had variables with different names also some variables were recorded on different tables and uh the same conceptual variable, but with different units. So we had to look through the distribution of each of the variables to make sure that you know they are similar. Um, so uh, of course, as I mentioned with clinical data, uh, uh, the issue of, of missingness is significant. Um, so for this work, uh, we actually evaluated 12 imputation strategies, and this is described uh, on this paper here. Um, so uh, the, the strategies ranged from simple uh, mean values up to using autoencoders. Um, what we found is that um, the best performing uh, method was indicator variables. Now, uh, what this means is that uh, for every clinical variable or demographic uh, that you have, you actually add um, uh, another dummy variable that indicates whether the value is missing or not. Of course, um, this has a a significant negative impact on on interpretability because first, the number of variables doubles. And the second is that the dummy variables are not relevant uh, for interpretability. So, what we've done, what we've done is we looked at the next uh, best performance, uh, which was uh, fill forward imputation. So, meaning that we carry data from the past into to the current uh, state. And um, for some variables, this was not possible. Uh, so we sat down with, uh, with the clinicians and uh, they suggested us to use a specific strategy depending on what they thought it was the most appropriate for, for each of the variables. So uh, there was not, let's say, one uh, single strategy that we used for uh, imputation of missing values. Uh, in terms of uh, model development, uh, so we compared three algorithms. Three algorithms um, uh, so we used, as usual, logistic regression as a baseline, then uh, random forest and uh, LSTM uh, hyperparameters using, uh, obviously, random search. And then we had two types of validation. Um, so internal and external. In terms of internal validation, we use stratified uh, cross-validation. And this was done separately on MIMIC and EICU. And then for external validation, uh, what we have done is we've derived a model on the EICU cohort. And then we used MIMIC as a test cohort. So. Uh, Obviously, uh, you can see here that it made sense to actually derive the model on the ICU because it was uh, bigger and then uh, to test it with a smaller data set. And then in terms of interpretability, uh, we used SHAP, uh, which is quite a popular uh, method to actually uh, provide um, variable ranking and how they impact uh, model predictions. Okay, Uh, so in terms of results, um, as you can imagine, there are quite a few results. So I won't stop uh, for, for each of these, but I, I will only highlight uh, two or three. So uh, in terms of uh, internal validation on, on the mimic cohort, um, what you can see here is that we are doing very well for the mild and for severe group. So we are able to predict uh, the next, next lactate with a pretty high performance for these two groups. For the normal group, even though AUC is acceptable, uh, precision recall uh, is low. And one of the reasons uh, was that uh, the normal group uh, was highly imbalanced. And what that really means is that uh, the patients that actually had normal lactate levels continued to have normal lactate levels. Uh, So there were very few patients that actually deteriorated so, which of course, you know, it's a very good thing uh, for the patients, uh, but uh, of course it creates a challenge for, um, for the prediction algorithms. Then we did a similar uh, validation, internal validation on the ICU and the results were uh, quite similar. Then I want to, to stop a bit more here uh, because we also did an external validation. And um, so, Typically, uh, when you do an external validation, so you train a model in one patient population and then test it in another, you know, you really expect the results to, de- to decrease sometimes by a significant margin because uh, it could happen that the case of the distributions are, are very different or simply the patient populations are very different. So, what we found here is that uh, this was not the case in our work. Um, so, both um, LSTM and and random forest showed a very, very similar performance. Now, what's interesting to note is that the gap uh, between logistic regression and the two other other algorithms, so LSTM and RF, increased. So what this could indicate is that uh, LSTM and RF were able to to generalize better than than logistic regression. So, as I said, also we provided this alternative uh, definition of deterioration uh, in terms of sensitivity analysis uh, with 10% increase in lactate and uh, predicting deterioration here was uh, much more difficult, so the results uh, were lower with respect to the group based approach. Okay, and lastly, um, we also did um, sensitivity analysis on restricting actually time window. Uh, between measurements. So what we wanted to do is to investigate whether the restricting the observation window to eight hours uh, would improve the result. Uh, We chose uh, eight hours because uh, lactate measurement guidelines suggest measuring lactate every six hours. Of course, this uh, doesn't happen always in, in, um, in clinical practice and neither was true for our data set. Um, uh, And then, uh, so the the guidelines say every six hours, plus we added uh, two hours to accommodate for the fact that it may take some time uh, for the values to be recorded. So what we found here is that uh, the results did not change significantly for mild and severe. Um, So we had a pretty uh, similar performance. However, the results for the normal group uh, increased slightly. So what this probably would mean is that if we restrict uh, the time window to eight hours, uh, the normal group becomes more balanced. So, uh, because obviously the patients that are critical, uh, they tend to have their lactate measured more often. Um, so um, by dropping the, let's say the patients that are stable, uh, the data set becomes a bit more balanced and the uh, performance increases. Um, we also looked at interpretability. So this is output of the SHAP uh, method uh, for each normal, mild and severe group. So what you can see here is that lactate so the previous lactate measurement uh, is uh, quite predictive uh, of the next lactate. Now uh, this was to an extent uh, expected um, but uh, some of these other variables that we have here, some of the clinical variables uh, were less expected and I think this definitely uh, requires uh, a further uh, clinical investigation. And finally, we also looked at the calibration. Um, So what we can see here is uh, we have the three groups and we have the three uh, evaluation methods. So internal evaluation mimic, internal EICU, and then external um, evaluation. What it shows here is that um, um, for the, the model that was predicting the normal group, um, was overconfident uh, with uh, the predictions, meaning that the output probability was higher than, than the actual outcome. And then, of course, another thing to note here, although it, it may be obvious, is that, uh, uh, for example, for LSTM, um, calibration was much better in the internal validation than external validation, which of course uh, is to be expected perhaps due to differences between the distributions. Okay, so in terms of discussion, so now I'm coming really to, to kind of the, the last part uh, of this of this presentation. What were the main findings? So uh, our results really prove that it's, it's possible to predict lactate and also provide early warning signs uh, of patient deterioration using machine learning methods. Um, in our case, LSTM was best performing. Uh, but uh, what was interesting is that uh, there weren't, that there wasn't a very large margin uh, with uh, random forest and logistic regression. Uh, this could be uh, due to the nature of the problem, uh, where I said past information perhaps is not uh, very relevant. Uh, and as such, uh, the LSTM sequences that we had were quite short. Uh, so what this means is that both uh, RF and logistic regression were actually able to, to capture the relevant information. Um, in terms of uh, uh, interpretability, um, uh, we need uh, to uh, uh, further investigate how uh, the impact of other clinical variables, um, uh, how the other variables actually impacted the, the uh, prediction performance. And then um, last thing to note here is that um, in this work, we could not include um, the treatment. So if there were drugs administered or fluids to these patients, because this information was not available. So um, if we manage for for, uh, let's say a future data set to also include these aspects, I think uh, the results are likely to improve because, it's the actual administration of uh, treatment that uh, significantly affects uh, lactate levels. Um, and okay, so and this is my last, last slide. So I want to, to stop a bit more here. So uh, this was the first study to actually investigate uh, a prediction of serum lactate. And I think one of the things that uh, this study has showed is how complex is lactate metabolism because um, it depends on the disease that the patient has, response to therapy, uh, treatment that has been administered, and perhaps it has a, a genetic basis as well. And all this information is currently not captured by, by the models so we are only seeing, uh, you know, a kind of a, a small window into, into the patient state, and even though it's a very small window, we still managed, I think, to uh, to establish models that were uh, performing quite well. Of course, um, uh, it, now the question is, how do we actually verify the clinical utility? So uh what i said at the beginning uh how to verify uh, ml solutions in, in in medicine so of course one way is a, is a prospective study but even if we do a prospective study uh, there are uh, several questions uh, that are open right now so one of these is you know what should we really be optimizing for so If we want to uh, optimize for prediction of negative outcomes, what that would mean is that we would be able to detect early signs of deterioration. And hopefully that would have an effect on reducing organ failure, reducing length of stay and uh, the final outcome, so mortality. Now, on the other hand, if we want to optimize for prediction of positive outcomes, then that will have the fact of reducing unnecessary testing, meaning that uh, it would reduce the risk of infection, it would reduce uh, the amount of uh, blood that's wasted uh, to actually do the test and and the hospital costs. So these two, um, you know, um, uh, it's impossible to have both. So I think um, these are kind of the questions that uh, probably do not have a universal answer And I think they probably will depend on um, a case-by-case basis. So with this, um, I will conclude and I will say that um, for studies like these, uh, we are very much open to collaboration, uh, both from machine learning point of view and clinical point of view, and uh, I am happy to, to take any questions.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Venet, for the very interesting presentation. Okay, so who wants to go first? Mm, Bjarne? Mm -hmm. All right, Um,
0: so thanks first uh, for the very interesting talk. Uh, We actually did a quite similar um, thing with um, predicting complications after pancreas surgery on ICU. And um, so I was interested in a few things actually. So first of all, um, of course, some of the features that you used are time series features like the heart rate and so on. So I was wondering how you were um, dealing with this for the more static models like logistic regression and the decision tree or random uh, forest actually.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so so, um, the usual ways is really either to uh, put them into a, a single vector. Uh, or to extract uh, some of the features. So for this work, uh, we actually put uh, these, uh, these uh, the time series feature into a single vector, and then they were considered as an input to both uh, logistic regression and random forest. Um, so um, yeah, so, so this is what we've done. But I should mention that in here, uh, due to the nature of this problem, uh, the actual sequences were quite short. So because our, uh, let's say our binning interval was two hours, meaning that uh, at most we had four or five uh, sequences, so four or five measurements before. Mm -hmm. So this did not represent a a very big problem. Of course, uh, if you're going uh, further in the past, then uh, some other, perhaps some other methods might be more appropriate.
0: OK, and also similarly, um, I think both databases that you used have quite uh, different frequencies. So I think EICU has a higher frequency of measuring data points. So how did you deal with that also for the LSTM um, input?
1: So so uh, we've been the data. Uh, so we chose a two-hour window. And mm-hmm. then uh, we took the, de- the, the data over those two hours.
0: Yeah, but then between the two databases, you might have um, 10 blood pressure measurements or uh, heart rate measurements in the one, and then only four in the other, or was it exactly the same, actually? Uh,
1: If I remember correctly, so this is something that probably uh, my colleague Behrouz would know better. However, um, uh, if I remember correctly, we chose the last one, so the closest to to the interval, uh, because those were the most representative of the patient state. All right. Uh, and then we discarded the others.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then one more thing um, that was also quite an issue for us uh, was the input of static data into an LSTM. So uh, patient information like the age and so on uh, obviously doesn't change over time. Yeah. Uh, we don't have more than one measurement. So how did you um, put that into the LSTM?
1: So this is, I don't remember this. Uh, this is something that uh, my colleague knows uh but i remember that we had uh, a discussion on this point um so unfortunately um i cannot answer this question right now but uh if you send me an email i'm happy to to provide the contact uh, information and the answer
2: great thanks a lot yeah uh thank you Brienne, for the question and the discussion Okay, do we have uh, another question for Venet? You can either do it by raising your hand uh, or, I mean, there is an option uh, below there or just unmute yourself and ask the question or you can even write the question and I will read it out loud. Uh, I'll just go ahead and ask. Yeah. Uh, So... We saw that the previous lactate value was the most important predictor. Uh, do you know perhaps how well you can predict using just this variable? Because this could be
1: a pretty reasonable baseline. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's that's definitely a very good question. So um, uh, I think this kind of analysis we haven't done yet. And uh, these are analyses that are definitely uh, very important, very useful. So for example, obviously uh, taking the previous lactate and looking how well it predicts the next one is the first step. But then uh, we should also try to reduce the number of variables uh, because for us, we had uh, 54 variables. And uh, you know, in terms of um, uh, simply computational power, and to reduce the, the, the amount of computation that needs to be done, I think uh, as a next step, what we need to do is we need to take perhaps you know the top five from each group, and then see, for example, if though how predictive are those with respect uh, to the overall model. So so this is this is the, definitely a direction that uh, will will go uh, towards in the future.
2: Uh, Okay, thanks. Thank you, Mitya. Okay, uh, do we have another question? okay um, i'll I'll maybe comment a little bit so as you said uh, tackling this medical data sets and this um, e health if I may it's it's not straightforward machine learning task so if you define it well as a i don't know supervised learning program then pro- probably you will solve it in a way let's say but the the, the point is here how to define it properly and so uh, i know also with the with the problem that we are solving uh, in the project with boyana and another one that we are doing with emilia so it's it's not an easy task yeah so yeah how much time do you spend on defining the project in this kind of dataset is yeah yeah
1: yeah so so this this exactly i you're right and this is uh, this took quite this took quite some time because um, I think you know, uh, when you have people with computer science background and the clinicians, of course, the language is not, is not really the same. And uh, simply going, uh, so if a clinician says, OK, I'm interested in deterioration," uh, for from machine learning point of view, it's very difficult, I think, to, to know how to actually transform that problem into a machine learning problem, let's say, a supervised learning problem. So uh, this took, took quite some time. So this took several months, in fact, uh, to come to a, a definition of the problem uh, such that uh, we, can, we can apply the, the algorithms themselves. And this is why, uh, as you probably saw on the team, so it was myself and Beruz from a machine learning point of view, and then the rest of the authors were all clinicians. And each of them you know, had their own uh, ideas and provided their own input. To arrive to, to, to this problem definition, and then of course, uh, in addition to this, what we have done here is is really simply the first step uh, because we've proven that okay, uh, if you apply uh, let's say machine learning algorithms, uh, lactate can be predicted, but. Uh, of course uh, you know how do you actually verify that uh, these kind of um, uh, this kind of work actually changes or, or impacts the, the patient outcomes and that's another uh, significant and huge challenge uh, that, we'll, that' we'll need to explore obviously in the future
2: Okay um, di- did you take a look into this uh, bias problem in medical data sets in, in, in this uh, analysis or not? No,
1: not, not not on this one no no um so this is uh, this is something that we'll do with you first <laughs> yeah. and then um, uh, and then uh, we'll see but we already know for example you know we did not use ICD codes uh, because uh, as I said you know they are they are really optimized for billing yeah. So to actually define uh, the um, uh, patient diagnosis, we used uh, Apache, uh, which is a clinical scale to, to, um, to say, uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a clinical standard that defines the, the patient diagnosis. So this is what we, we used in this, in this work.
2: Thank you. Do we have some last question? It doesn't have to be last. <laughs> I think we can have a few more if there are any. Okay. Uh, then let's wrap up. So, thank you, Venet, for the very interesting uh, research that you have done and you, sh- you have shared with us. Uh, so, and that will be all for today. Uh, if you are interested in this kind of topics, uh, yeah, you can follow us also on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, uh, but also you will get uh, notifications whenever we have some news or a seminar to share with you. So thank you all for joining this seminar and uh, have a good afternoon.